0: fam thanks for checking this little recording out if you're listening to this it means you must have attended a talk workshop or even a class of mine that i recorded and you want to get the nitty-gritty that's great excellent if you're just being snoopy and you're trying to figure things out it's all good my name's dan white hodge i'm an educator and you about to learn something today thanks again for following up and i truly hope this adds an enrichment to you and your work As always, hit me up if you got them questions at WhiteHodge.com and check out my podcast while you're at it, Profane Faith. I'll talk with you later. Peace. Uh, all right, here we go, perfect. Well, welcome. Uh, my name is Daniel White-Hodge, and uh, I am a professor over at North Park University here in Chicago. So, didn't travel that far today, just uh, eight miles up the road. Although, if you know anything about Chicago, man, eight miles is, you know, that can be like 30 miles in other places, man, especially with traffic. I'm not looking forward to going home this evening. But at any rate, uh, it's, it's great to be here. I'm the director for the Center of Youth Ministry Studies there. Uh, and also a professor in youth ministry. Um, and Excuse me, a lot of part of what we look at is looking at this, these intersections that Terry is, is, is talking about, you know, how does practice inform theology? How does theology inform uh, best practices? You know, how do we begin to create, you know, new modes and new models, uh, particularly within youth, within youth ministry uh, that tends to be very one sided? I want to say one sided, but theologically and then, you know, group wise, you know, suburban, affluent, you know, kids. And so we kind of want to begin to kind of look out. One of the studies that we're going to be doing here within the next year is a study on Gen Y and millennials within the urban and hip-hop context uh, urban inner-city models I mean well I've read a little tons of millennial literature in Gen Y uh, and none of them mentioned anything about hip-hop and the 90s and the 80s crack generation you know and those effects on those kids particularly born after 82 and 83 and so this is one of the studies that we want to look at and we're going to be using How and Strauss methodology because you know we know that's going to be probably a question like well how did you come to these conclusions like well How and Strauss did it first you know with Gen Y and their kind of Millennials rising and you know their terminology, so we want to replicate that uh, methodology, but really apply it to the urban and inner city ethnic minority model and see what is what, what is what does that look like uh, so that 's one of the things we 're hoping to get going within the next year, depending on funding and grants and as you all know, and that, uh, that can be a, a stopper in these days um, uh, youth uh, i mean hip hop is a something I have vast experience in both, uh, not not only just as an academic, but also as a practitioner. You know, I, I was you know as an as an artist. I was a, a producer. I did a lot, worked with a lot of the artists back in the '90s, uh, and, and recorded a lot of music uh, with folks. Uh, probably you guys probably know Snoop Dogg or Bone Thugs in Harmony. I worked with them, and so understanding it from both sides has been very uh, helpful uh, to not just understand it from a, you know a research perspective, but to understand okay, this is how people are might be thinking or how they're thinking particularly folks. hip-hop is entering is now you know in it is 40s you know <laughs> early 40s and so you know the younger generation you know in their 15s and eight you know there's a that's, that's a generation gap even within a genre that was started supposedly you know within a young pretty young crowd and so now we're starting to figure out okay what does this really look like and so hip-hop and missiology um, is something that I've very, very much been interested in. I did my dissertation at Fuller looking at Tupac Shakur as a missiologist uh, for this generation and for hip hoppers and for the urban community and really engaging that and really how do we you know, understand so these kind of these new modes and models of understanding missiology for urban domestic uh, hip hop culture. And so that's kind of where a lot of this is kind of rooted in. You'll hear some new research, some new uh, aspects that I've been bringing out in this new book I'm working on uh, called The Hostile Gospel, looking at at, uh, you know, hip-hop in kind of a racial and gendered lens, you know, what does that look like? Uh, and then, of course, my last book, which was on the soul of hip-hop. I'm not here to promote that, just to kind of tell you this is kind of the, the, the grounding for this uh, for this work. And so uh, we're toward a missiology of hip-hop and youth, and so that's kind of what we want to get into. So I want to talk a little bit. I know our time is pressed, so I want to talk a little bit, uh, and then we'll get some time for Q&A and actually have a little discussion. So I kind of want to lay a groundwork for uh, why hip-hop and what's going on with hip-hop and then we'll continue on with uh... questions so Hip hop is spiritual, you know. That's one of the questions I get a lot. You know, how can hip hop be so spiritual? How can it even connect to God, right? You know, when you start thinking about artists that all they talk about is bees and hoes, and they talk about the women the way they do. That you know, they're out there having sex, they're out there drinking, they're out there living what we like to call as Christians, you know, this worldly life, this secular life. How can you even say that, Dan? Well, I would say that a large part of that commercial part—not disagreeing that that exists, that exists, and it's big—but it's also a small part of the core of what hip hop is. So. Real simplistically, KRS-One, one of the godfathers of hip-hop, one of the founding godfathers of hip-hop, puts it like this, he said, hip-hop is something that's being lived, rap is something that's being done. That's a real simplistic way of looking at the differences between hip-hop. Anybody can rap hip-hop but hip-hop is a lifestyle you know I still consider myself a hip-hopper even though you know my pants are pulled up a little bit and you know I don't have the bling bling on everything but I'm a hip-hopper at heart they got my heart this is what's going on in me you know now I'm not a rapper don't don't ask me to rap you don't want me to rap I rap in the shower by myself alone sequestered away from everybody you know but I know music and I know how music breaks down and I was able to really do that for a long time Uh, and that's you know that's kinda where I came into the conversation but anybody can rap and nowadays you know uh, in fact Ice-T's got a new documentary out on hip-hop and rap and looking at you know the art of of rapping because it really is an art so here's a definition this is a definition that myself Ephraim Smith and Phil Jackson if you haven't read their book the hip-hop church I highly recommend that as well Um, and by the way I probably won't be doing so much of a historical context I highly recommend if you haven't read Jeff Shang and his book uh, and it don't stop that you really got to read that and then of course Nell Nelson George, Hip Hop America. These are really good, and there's more historical books, but those two are really big because they go kind of chronalize what was happening and what how the hip hop music formed. For example, in 1981, MTV was formed, and that was a big breakthrough in our pop culture society. Now you wouldn't think about putting out an album without having videos. You know, Prior to that, it was just well he's gonna put out an album, videos, what are you talking about? 1989, I was the first Grammy won by a hip-hop and rap artist, DJ Jazzy Jeff, parents just don't understand. The first Grammy, and that kind of ended the argument that hip-hop and rap is just noise, you know, up until that point people were like, "All oh, rap music, is just a bunch of noise, it's not music, you know, and then they run the Grammys, and now, like, you have several different categories within hip-hop and rap that you can win. You know, people have adopted it as music this is music we're going to do that um and so that's kind of that's a that's a great perspective you want to look at that i'm going to be looking focusing more on a lot of some of the shifts in religion some theological perspectives and obviously i want to end on some missiological perspectives uh for us so let me give some quick definitions again this definition comes out of a combination of myself phil jackson and Ephraim smith Uh, and it's really hard to kind of give a definition of hip-hop but we try to anyway because there's a lot of you know you, you can't put something this big into a box but you know we're in the Academy so we have to you know we have to at least give some kind of definition of what the heck it is we're talking about So here we go hip-hop is an urban subculture that seeks to explore a lifestyle attitude and or urban individuality I'll repeat that again hip-hop is an urban subculture that seeks to engage or express a lifestyle attitude and or urban individuality right so this lifestyle that I was talking about, right? So it rejects a dominant culture and seeks to increase a social consciousness of racial and ethnic pride. So it rejects this dominant culture. That was one of the conversations when you guys, you guys were coming in and we were having about you know rejecting what is dominant culture. There's a lot of facets to that. You know, it's not just the white man anymore. Not at least not for hip hoppers. There's a lot of facets of what dominant culture is, but we'll unpack that hopefully here in a little bit. So it rejects dominant culture, seeks to increase a social consciousness and racial and ethnic pride. Hip-hop uses rap music as a vehicle to send and fund its message. You know, rap, I mean, that's the old 1970s term. I'm gonna go rap to somebody, to talk to somebody. You know, rap, that's how it started. I'm gonna, we're gonna talk over beats. You know, back in the day when people actually played instruments in bands, right? You know, Cool and the Gang, the Commodores, Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know. They you know, they'd play these long 15, 18 minute long songs where right around the 7 to 10 minute mark, they have a breakdown. And so DJs would get that, loop it, and then people would talk over that. And that's kind of the birth of it. And talking about life problems, man, I just lost my cat today, I'm upset. You know, I mean, they're talking about these things and engaging in it and really connecting with people. So rap, therefore, is the main medium of hip-hop culture that brings what? Well, it brings definition, value, understanding, and appreciation. Well, to what? Social isolation, economic hardship, political demoralization, and cultural exploitation endured by most ghetto poor communities. Let me repeat that. Rap is the main medium of the hip-hop culture that brings what? Definition, value and understanding and appreciation to the social isolation, economic hardship, political demoralization, and cultural exploitation endured by most ghetto poor communities. And a lot of this is just in narrative form. If you know how to exegete really good rap lyrics, they're telling a story. They're telling you this is what's going on, and most of the times it's done in from three perspectives. It's either first-person narrative, you know, uh, allegorical fables, you know, or third-person, you know, I'm just observing. You know, that's basic hip-hop exegesis. You know, you're just looking at it from those basic perspectives. What are they talking about? If they're talking about, I killed all these people, I'm going on, blah, blah, blah. Well, let's see, you're a millionaire and you're driving around, I just saw you on TV last week, you probably didn't kill all these people, alright? So let me go back and listen, that's when people say, all oh, these lyrics are so violent. Well, what are they talking about? What are they actually talking about? Now there is some mess out there, and I'll give you that, but that's part of what's going on. So value, understanding, appreciation, social isolation, economic hardship, political demoralization, and cultural exploitation. Thus, rap music is the musical expression that complements the oral communication of its culture. But here's what RAP also does. It esteems, it captures and esteems the ghetto poor existence as valid and real to all people of color, including poor whites. All right? So I'll read that again. RAP also captures and esteems the ghetto poor existence as valid and real to all people of color, including poor whites. So what does that mean? That's why I love a film like Eight Mile. If you haven't watched that, I highly recommend it. There's a lot of theology going on in the movie Eight Mile. Okay? Uh, we can break that down just with Eminem, but the fact that it captures and it seems like, this is a valid and real lifestyle. We live this way. You know, it's what the old band Living Color, I don't know if you guys remember the rock band, black rock band from the 80s and 90s, Living Color used to say, you know, which way to your America? You know, I look out my America, my America's doing time. I look out your America window, your America's doing fine. I just want to know which way to your America. You know, so they're talking about these things, they're talking about these issues, they're, they're capturing them in music. You know, within music, there's a fundamental attempt to make life, God, theology more accessible to the people in these communities around them that are listening to them. You know, and this is, this is some of the, you know, it's just like what uh, oh, my, my, my old mentor was here, he's an ethnomusicologist, you know, uh, Titan says, he's, you know, he says, Music is a universal language, but its meaning is not meaning is not. So we got to unpack those meanings. What does this mean? Got to get past some of the four letter words, you know? It's like, "Well, what are you talking about?" Because if we're denying that this doesn't exist, right? We've already denied almost a whole side of that. And that's one of the biggest things that I've gotten from some of the research that I got from interviews, like, "I want people to know that what I'm going through is very real." And that's why I can connect with Tupac. That's why I can connect with ice That's When I can connect with, you know, even Trick Daddy because this is what I'm going through. You know, even when, you know, when in, you know, 50 Cent uses the gun, and he's like, well, the gun, I mean, to back up even further, has been a sign of, a, you know, in America, of male stability and male protection that goes way beyond hip-hop. I mean, you just watch a John Wayne Western and know that the gun is the sign of manhood. We're going to protect other people you know, with the gun. We're going to protect that. Well, right or wrong, you know, nevertheless the gun. So it stands to reason why 50 Cent in turn would embodilize you know, Im- 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 and symbolize this as one of his you know, modes of identity. You know, so before, that's why I always tell people, before we go and criticize hip hop, we have to step back even further and what is the rest of larger society doing? You know, we talk about, oh, they're violent rappers. Yes, well, a lot of our movies are violent movies. You know, when you think about Arnold Schwarzenegger shooting all these people up in Terminator, or even, uh, what was I watching that movie? Um, uh, the, uh, the, the disposable, none of disposables, so the, um, they were the mercenaries, and it was Sylvester Stallone, and The Rock was in it and everything. Anyway, they're just shooting all these East Asian people. They're like, they're nothing. They're just shooting them. And I'm just like, um, and there's, you know, and they're, they're telling jokes everything. You know, every good action movie, they shoot somebody and then tell joke. ha ha, stick around. You know, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Whereas a lot of rappers are actually talking about life that's actually really happening. This is what happened. You know, Brenda's got a baby. We're going to talk about that. You know, this is what's happening. You know, Kendrick, uh, oh man, Kendrick Thomas, man, that's another brother you got to listen to. There's another hip hop artist that talks about this idea and the conceptualization of the profane and the sacred, you know. So he's talking about real things. So rap captures that and esteems it and says, you know what, it's real and it's what's going on. It's what Chuck D said. It says that rap is ours. CNN, if that makes sense. It's the way we are able to tell stories about what's going on in our lives. But here's the problem. rap brings the revenue, which fuels its culture and its message. And that's where the, the rub comes. Because people are making money. It's a, it's a tool. It's a tool to make money. You know? and, you know, the Time Warner, Sony Music Group, you know, Rupert Murdoch, they don't care what's going on in the community. They just see that this is a multi-billion dollar industry. So we've got to tap into that. And so that's where some of the rub comes, with some of these fronts. Um, so that kind of gives you just a little bit of insight about what's going on and how hip-hop begins to really come around in that. You know, remember, you got to remember, hip-hop during the, when it was in its birth, during the 60s, was formed at a time in America that America was really shifting. You know, those of you who really, you know, understand, like, kind of the depth of cultural studies, you know, prior to World War II, the country, governmentally speaking, could really do no wrong. You know, we marched right into Nazi Germany, marched right over to Japan. People weren't really questioning that. The enemy was clear. That's the enemy. That's why we glorify World War II. I mean, that's why there's so many films and so many books and so many documentaries that go back to that era because that's when it was clear. It became less clear when we went into Korea, Vietnam, Nicaragua, Grenada. Who's the enemy? The last declared war that we have in the United States is World War II. Everything after that has just been an operation or a mission. You know, of course we know the difference, right? That's just semantics and language. But at the end of the day, the communities, particularly in ethnic minority communities, begin to say, well, this is a different America that we're living in. In the 60s, it got real bad with, you know, civil rights movement, Jim and Jane Crow laws. How do we begin to understand this and where are we going to place this you know, into society? And So disco comes along and most folks are like, you know, forget disco. Disco's too funny, it's too that, uh-uh. And so really hip hop was like a revolt of disco music. That's why a lot of early rap music actually used that music and loop it and turn it into something completely different. Because they're like, no, we ain't going to listen to that. We're going to connect with something that's talking to us. So it's about this narrative. And that's where we have to start, missiologically speaking. What is the story? What is your story? You know, what, what is going on? We'll talk about the missio day here in hip-hop in a second. Um, shifting sands of religion. Let me talk a little bit about that. Um, do I want to do that? Do I wanna, yeah, let's go here. So religious taxonomy in post-soul context. Post-soul is a fancy word for, it's a contextual word for really post-modernity, but it includes more of ethnic minority urban, you know, um, a context with it. Really first termed back in the 70s, late 70s and early 80s, uh, Nelson George, Mark Anthony Neal, uh, Gina Dent are some of the other theorists who use that word in their context. In fact, Nelson George actually writes a whole thing, post-soul nation, uh, and he actually goes through in defining it. Not from a religious perspective, perspective but just coming from a very standard this is what's going on in our society and so we bring in religion in context because religion has gone through some major changes over the last 45 50 years you know we know that we know that no more you can just open up your doors and expect people to come you know this idea that they'll, you know if you build it they will come that just doesn't really work anymore the idea of giving tracks to somebody I was listening to this history of Awanas yesterday from the president I had a meeting with him you know I don't know if you guys know who Awanas is or the organization Awanas but they're just they work with young people right and so the idea was like we're gonna go evangelize we're gonna do this but the idea is now is that whoa they're not coming anymore like what do we do they are not coming in anymore well that worked in the 50s and 40s but not anymore because religion has changed well what does it change to religion tends to make people feel good this is just again some of the research that I've done part of part of my dissertation research looked at uh, evangelism within the african-american context and so I had to go and survey and Case studies, several churches uh, on the West Coast, uh, and this is essentially what I started coming up with when I compared that data uh, to a lot of new research that emerges in Fred that, that's dealing with brain movements that says, how do people react cognitively when they go to church services? How do they engage with worship services? So it's very interesting to see some of that stuff come out. Very much a social event, you know. So hip hop isn't like, well, I can feel good and go to a social event. The local club. I don't. I don't need to go to church for that. Like, what? You know, what? What? What are, what are we going to church for? Well, it's also about getting high at church. Not necessarily smoking or injecting or, or, or snorting something. But research has found that some of the same brain waves that people get, or brain, um, the, the way the brain lights up on both the left and right side, that happens when you ride a roller coaster. Happens when you're at church. You know. And the reality of it is, is that you know, one researcher research found that he said when you are surrounded by 800, 200, 300 other people, like at a ball game, it's almost intuitive. When they start yelling, you start yelling. It's like, yeah, so it's kind of this mob mentality. So it's very interesting when you start thinking about church and religion in context. Particularly when you start thinking about the Political Circus Act on both sides. You know, there is the left wing that says, you know, boo on right wing conservative, you know, vote this way, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get them out of office. And then the same thing happens on the right. You know, it's kind of the both thing. You know, you got Fox News, you got MSNBC, you know. So they kind of go, go at each other, you know. And so, you know, it kind of turns into that. You know, a lot of hip hoppers say, look, both, none of y'all, you know, because Democrats get in office, and they're like, boo, a Democrat. And we get Republicans in office, and they're like, boo. And it kind of just keeps going, this tennis match, keeps going. And hip hoppers are like, we're done with that. Because none of y'all are paying attention to us. As one hip hopper said, you know, every time there's an election, people always show up in the hood, and we their best friends. But as soon as the cameras are gone, they gone, you know. And that gets to you know, start thinking. That was kind of after city, after city, after city. I was like, "What do you think about elections?" They're like, "Man, I don't vote, man, and forget voting." And so, lastly, of course, proving what is right or wrong, morality, sin, salvation, clearly defined. And for hip hoppers, that's just not going to go over very, you know, very well. And that that brings up some tensions and some problems for us, particularly for when we start thinking about. Biblical morality, theological morality. You know, how do we begin to define sin? What is sin? So so hip hoppers are going to begin to challenge some of that. And like I said in the last session, we're not even getting into Rastafarians, Nation of Islam, Five Percenters, Zulu Nation, which are also other competing religious identities. I had a young person tell me about four years ago, you know, 15 year old, he's like, Man, I'm giving up. He was raised in a black gospel church, a Baptist church. He said, like, I'm not I'm I'm done with this. I'm leaving it. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? You know, my righteous indignation. You know, like, what are you, what are you talking about? And He's just like, because I never actually get to think. I never get to speak and I never get to talk. But I'm going to Rastafarians because they let me talk. They give me a connection. And so they give me that meaning. So they let me express myself. And so there's a lot of things lost. I mean, I know I went to the Nation of Islam for a long time because I never saw a contextualized image of Christ. You know, it wasn't until I began to see some of those things that I was like, "Oh, wait, 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 wait! This is this is what's going on over here. Ah, oh, I get it." But there's a lot of that, and most people don't actually get that advantage. They just see, "Oh, I can get to speak over here. You know, I get to go over there. Nobody's condemning me." You know, there's moralism that happens a lot of time. So there's been a lot of shifts in religion, particularly as it pertains to how hip-hoppers um, view um, uh, religion and um, religion and Christianity, for that matter. Because remember by distrusting and calling out hegemonic systems hip-hop is also condemning churches as well but very rarely in the music in the music, is there a straight condemnation or a straight blasphemous uh, direct quote against God, Christ, or the Holy Spirit? Very rarely. Very rarely. Most of the time it's uplifting those, the Trinity, but really holding back down religion and church and the messed up stuff. I mean, Tupac even says if people gave half the money back into the community that they give to the church, we wouldn't have a lot of the problems that we have right now because the church takes that stuff and, you know, because he even says it in one of his interviews, he's like, why do pastors need these gold churches and you know, why does the pastor have to be driving a Lexus? you know, and I'm just like, yeah, that continues today. Two years ago, I was at a church doing some work, and the pastor uh, gets up. This is a black church, and he gets up, and he says, God has called me to drive a Bentley. Now, he had just bought a new Jaguar, and now he says, God is calling me to drive this Bentley, and I thought he was joking, but he was serious. a heart attack and diarrhea, right? So, he puts this big bucket in the front. The deacons go and lock the doors, right? And, uh, you know, as I'm thinking, like, the Kool-Aid's coming out now, you know, like, what's, what's going on? Why did I just get my into and people start giving money now the mean income of his church was less than $25,000 a year this is in Southern California and you know Southern California I mean that, that ain't no joke but here are uh, people giving this money and every time they put a check oh sister so-and-so God is gonna bless you you know we gotta bless you so kids see that and they're like man F that I ain't doing that mess no more I'm gonna go give money over here to this movement. I'm gonna go give money over here. Well, I ain't gonna give money at all. You know, why does God need my money? If God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, you know, what does God need my Those are some of the questions that come up. Okay, if that makes sense. So, religion is shifting. These things are, I think, major events. I don't have the time to get into one of these, but we're mainly talking about the dates between about 1967 to about 1993 with some of these major changes. Now, there's been stuff since, don't get me wrong, but those are some of the major events that have happened, uh, you know, that have helped influence even hip hop to rap the way it raps. So, let's get into uh, hip hop's kind of central theological typologies, if you will. We'll do this and then, um, because I know we've got to be done in a certain time. So one, there's the creating of a God within the context of suffering. That's going to be probably the, number, that's probably the number one tenet that comes up in all the music, all the, all the interviews, all the data is suffering. How is a God that perceivingly looks like everything's together going to con- con- connect with me because I'm in a messed up situation? You know, hell to somebody living in hell is, is a, is a moot point. In other words, you know, it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to talk about hell and a devil, because it's like, this is hell. If you've seen the film Precious, you know exactly what I'm talking about, you know, because I've known kids like that. I've worked with kids like that, and I continue to know kids like that. And so the conversation about heaven and hell, I mean, it's like you ask somebody, what is freedom? And they're like, I don't know what freedom is, but I know what it's not. They can't even define what freedom is. They just know what it's not. And that's a big thing. So this creative of a God within the context of suffering, outlaws and Tupac are after that with their song, Black Jesus. Well, what else? It's the post-soul questioning of authority from social structures. So I don't even know if I can trust you, man. You know, I don't even know that, you know that just because you have a reverend title, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't know that. So rarely even when I enter these contexts do I identify myself as a pastor, or a reverend, or a doctor, even less with a PhD. Because you know, that's automatically red flags up. I did that one time. Guy in the corner was like, man, what the F you doing here? I mean, just straight up. You know what the f you doing here? You know you don't belong with us. You know it's like, oh, okay. You know so there's there's all these walls, right? Well, why? Because people who said they were going to do these things, people who said they've all failed us. I mean, I remember after the riots in Los Angeles, April 29th, 1992, they had this thing called Rebuild Los Angeles. 800,000 jobs they were promising to the riot zone. 800,000. They had raised close to a billion dollars in funds, and there were all these great things, right? Six months later, those doors closed. I still don't know where that money went or where those jobs ended up at. So kids see that. My generation saw that. The younger generation behind me saw that, and they were like, why should we trust politicians? Why should we even vote? Who even cares? Right? So this post so destruction, well, this brings into another aspect of suffering, hip hop community and suffering. So the community suffering together, like, man, I grew up in this environment, again going back to 8 Mile, Eminem is called a nigger twice in that film. They identify him as a nigger. Now, Raman D.G. Kelly writes an excellent book called Race Rebels. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And he equates nigger, the term nigger, more as a class term than it is a racial term when used in that context. Well, why? Well, in that movie, Eminem, single mom, mom's dating a high school friend of his, right? S- uh, single-family home, no father, broke us all get out, you live in the hood, you know. Yeah, you one of us. You one of us, dude. use, you use a nigga. You in here. I've even had hip hoppers, you know, qualifying Christ as a nigga, too, you know, it's like baby mama drama, cursed out the officials, one of his boys did a man. Man, shoot, that's hip hop, dude. You know, <laughs> that's the hip hop story. Are you kidding me? Went to jail, wasn't even guilty, got killed on death row. Not even killed, but killed, K-I-L-T. Like, yeah, that's, you know, that's the Jesus hip hoppers want to connect with. Not the fancy hippie Jesus with the sandals, you know, kind of turning the other cheek, even though people read that out of context. They want to connect with the Jesus that went in to the temple and whipped up some people, put some foot in some people, as as one dude said, you know, he put a foot in a mother ass. Because <laughs> you know, this was a quote from him. He's like, you know, that's what that's the Jesus I want to connect with. So hip hop community and suffering. Well what next? Hip hoppers problem solve within rap music. We're going to talk about this stuff. Again, exegeting the music means understanding what the lyrics and the artists are actually trying to say rather than imposing our own beliefs. That was one of the things that AAR this last year, excellent conference if you haven't been to, American Academy of Religion, uh, that we proposed was like, how do we allow the lyrics and the songs to speak for themselves without us imposing our own biases? How do we really look at a song in context? Was the artist really saying this? Or were they actually trying to get at something else? You know, but you know, what are hip hoppers trying to problem solve? Well, it's you pain, suffering, economics, a whole bunch of different things. And then, of course, lastly, distrust of hegemonic systems and networks. You know, this idea that I don't know if I can trust these systems. I'm going to come at it real lightly. You know, but here's the thing. Once you gain the trust of some of these young people, man, you got it for life. Trust me on that one. You know, but it's that old Young Life saying, you know, earning the right to be heard. I mean, it's, it's that it's that earning that sometimes gets a little weary. You know, particularly working with kids. You know, and I worked with kids for almost two decades, so it just it begins to get a little weary sometimes. Like, man, I gotta do this again. I gotta tell you this again. But that's part of it because I know the history of. I don't trust anybody. My mama don't told me not to trust anybody. My grandfather told me not to trust nobody. So why should I trust you, especially if you say you're a Christian? You want money? I mean, that was the first time <laughs> I was running this Young Life club, and they were like, "Well, you want money, right?" And I was just like. No, you ain't got to give me no money, man. You ain't got to give me no money. Which brought up other issues because, you know, I, I did technically have to raise my salary, right? So what do you do with that? So these are hip-hop central theological typologies. This is, this is kind of some of the new emerging stuff. And then lastly, I want to just touch on some of the missiological perspectives. I have other slides, by the way. If you want my PowerPoint, you can email me uh, and I'll get that to you. But uh, we obviously don't have the time to get into all of this. And I want to have time for you guys to ask some questions. So I'll end on this. Missions to hip-hop. I think it's about understanding the Missio day within hip-hop. It's understanding that God has been at work in the hip-hop community long before any missionary or any theologian or any pastor, or any academic or anybody set foot in that community. You know, and I had to learn this, you know, because I'm thinking, oh, we're going to the hip-hop community, introduce them to Christ, and I show up, and I'm like, whoa, there's some stuff going on here that I need to listen to. I, I need to be the student now you know understanding that God is at work how do we understand that well we break it down we exegete the community church will look different in hip-hop good contextualization will do that in fact, one of the things I'm going to tomorrow, unfortunately, why I won't be here tomorrow is because Phil Jackson, uh, he runs a whole hip-hop church community out here on the South Side of Lawndale community in Chicago, uh, and we're doing what's called a hip-hop revival, and I know that sounds kind of D.O. Moody-ish and Spurgeon-ish and whatever, but he's built a relationship in that community that he can actually call it hip-hop revival. So we got Lupe Fiasco coming out, uh, we got Curtis Blow coming out, and so uh, it's going to be this whole kind of block party type thing. It's going to start at noon, go to whenever, and so but that's part of it he's and he's one of the few churches in the country that actually is trying to not just use hip-hop as a tool Like we're gonna use the DJ and get in you know and then kind of bait-and-switch like once they're in they're saved now you can't listen to hip-hop anymore because it's of the devil no 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 he's like no we're gonna keep it going and we're going to use this to actually learn from each other and to actually engage it uh, from this particular perspective this is what Dan Shaw and Chuck Van Ingen say this is his missiologists We're increasingly convinced that even in the revelation, the primary focus goes beyond communication to what? Relationship. And that's ultimately what I'm after here. You know, this is Chuck Craft 101. You know, not necessarily just speaking the gospel to somebody, but actually living. It's what I tell all of my young little youth pastors coming through. It's like, man, your life may be the only Bible that kids ever read. What are you going to do with it? How do you live this stuff out? How do you engage it? I'm about living this out, you know, the the going into the ethnos, the Matthew 28, the nations, right? So if that is the case, then gospel communication becomes an introduction of the text in a new context from which, because of different assumptions, new understanding emerges. And this is ultimately what I'm after with hip hop. There's a new understanding. How do we look at it? How do we engage? A lot of what Terry was talking about. How does this inform that? How does the practice inform this? I don't want to just continue to just do best practice. That's great. But what is God calling us to do? What is, what is the mission here? Ultimately, is giving up on religionism and focusing more on Jesus. This contextualized you know, Z here is kind of the outlaws. And Tupac, you know, they say, you know, I don't know about the S at the end, but I do know the Z because I can relate to the Z. And that's a whole other song right in and of itself, right? And then lastly, it's reversing the hermeneutical flow. This is Larry Kreitzer, you know, who says, you know, we're going to use pop culture to interpret the Word of God and vice versa. We're going to interpret pop culture using the Word of God so it's this symbiotic relationship, you know, understanding things. What is God saying in the culture? I mean, this is, you know, Niebuhr 101, right? You know, this appropriation, this dialogue within culture and society rather than saying, well, we have all the answers. You know, I think we've, we're quickly, you know, kind of losing that authority. Like, we all have all the answers. Let me come down and look at it. Again, missiologically speaking, let me engage it, but let me contextualize. And how do I begin to do that? It may mean that I don't have all the theological answers, but I may mean that I can help you better understand, for example, liturgy. What are we going to do? Because here's the thing, hip-hoppers, although they're against religion, they're not against liturgy. You know, I come out of the Seventh-day Adventist tradition that says, you know, every quarter we do um, uh, communion and we do what's called an ordinance of humility where we wash each other's feet. Men go on one side, women go on the other. And we wash each other's feet. So I grew up with that. So one day I just did that with my guys I Just said, We're just going to go out and wash each other's feet. And the first time they were like, Whoa, what are you doing? Wash my feet? What's going on in here, right? But after a while, and we explained what it was about and the theological significance and what, what it was about, they started getting it. And then they started telling other people, like, whoa, dude, you got to come check this out, man. We're watching each other's feet. You know, a people like, watching each other's feet? What, what y'all doing over there, man? But once it picked up, I mean, they, they love the Eucharist. But it's got to be in their context, you know. It's like when my friend um, Paul Chang says out from San Francisco. He says, you know, we don't talk about the bread of life. We talk about the rice of life in this Asian community. Bread doesn't really have a lot of context and meaning, but rice does. You say, well, Dan, you're switching up the Bible. It's just being contextual. It's just being contextual. It's making meaning. It's making, it's like Paul says, I became all things to all men to just to win a few. You know, and I want to begin to get in there and to really engage it. Not to say any compromise your morals, not compromising who you are, but it is about looking at this thing from this type of missiological perspective. Let me open it up for a few questions, a few thoughts, responses. I'll stop there. Yeah, yeah let, me, let me attempt to do that. Uh, um, Post-Soul is essentially... a a, a word we're trying to use to define what the the elements and effects of post-modernity but on the inner city particularly ethnic minority communities and so post meaning when you say soul, are you talking about soul or soul music? Or what? All of that. Oh. The soul of, you know, the, the idea that soul music, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, all of those were rooted in the church, rooted in very traditional yeah. forms of life. Civil rights movement was rooted in the church, but once that break happened, you know, okay being assassinated, you know, the, the denigration of the crack generation of the eighties, things shifted and people started saying, ah, that was cool. That's why in this generation, the closest to what I like to call singularized leadership you know, Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, Dijerina Lopez, they all spoke for their people, right? One person. But this generation doesn't have that. The closest they had was Tupac. And a large part of that is because people are figuring out, dude, I don't just think all like you. It's like when Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and all these guys got together and they were like, we are going to bury the word nigga. Great, but that didn't mean really much in the hip hop community. (laughs) and it just didn't. Good or bad, you can agree or disagree with the, you know, the actual word, but in the hip hop community it didn't. Dolores C. Tucker, left wing, liberal, the whole thing. You think, oh, hip hoppers are gonna you know, connect with her. Wrong. She was older, she was disconnected, and in 1993 she led a campaign against hip hoppers because their lyrics were too violent. She wanted to ban all rap music. In one week, Snoop Dogg sold two million albums because she was criticizing his album. So people, what do they do? They went out and bought it you know so since was like yeah great keep criticizing me you know keep talking to me so if the post soul generation looks at the older generation and says hey, i don't know dyson best characterizes it like this within the african-american community as an example he says it's a difference between what's called the afroistocracy and the ghetto istocracy those that are upper class okay. kind of elite That's- that have made it Right And the ghetto's talking to you're still those stuck in the hood, and the up here they're saying, "Just pull yourself up by your bootstrap." And there's this major disconnect, because the bottom says, "We've been trying. We were born without boots." So what now? Does that makes sense?: yeah, A little bit OK. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hard thing to kind of clarify without unpacking more of the literature, but yeah. I wanted to at least get at that. Yeah, Thank you. yeah no, no, absolutely. thanks for asking. So Other thoughts? Really that <laughs> 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 you know, the, the odd thing is that Will Smith is, but not because of his, his, his acting. He's, he's, he's gotten more cred for that. Um, but his rapping is, yeah. I mean, but any good hip-hop head will say, we gotta pay, you gotta pay homage to Will Smith and what he did. I um, mean, he was the first one who got the Grammy. I mean, you can't, you can't deny that in the music that he was putting out, and what he did with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Anybody who's thinking knows that the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air gave white America an insight into black America for one of the first times outside of the Cosby Show, right? Because Quincy Jones, they were originally going to film the whole thing in Philadelphia, and they were going to do this poor story. That's why Will Smith starts out, you know, in Wells Philadelphia, born and raised. But they're like, no, 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 people ain't going to go for that. Go to Bel Air, we'll do the whole show out on the West Coast, and we'll, we'll do it that way. And we'll still keep connections to the inner city. So they still flirted with these issues of race and class and gender, but it was done in a satirical way. That makes sense. And from the health, particularly Africa. Yeah your work, but oh. how is going to be a oh. to the flow. Absolutely. And I think places like Kenya and South Africa, Nigeria, the Congo, Sierra Leone, uh, and even the Sudan, especially like Darfur. I mean, the rappers that are coming out of there, I mean, they're talking about some amazing, crazy, horrendous stuff. But they're getting it out. I always say, praise God they're getting it out on tape rather than actually living some of these things out. You're talking about mutilating people like yeah that's bad but it's even worse if they actually go live that out you know I know for me in my context hip-hop is one of the agents that helped save my life because when everybody else was out in the corner doing their crazy stuff I was in my room my little keyboard trying to make beats up till three or four in the morning so all that energy was spent put out into lyrics Were they the best music of course not well some of the lyrics lyrics demeaning of course but what was the end result? The end result is that I ended up in prison and in jail because I was in my room. Does that make sense? So I think it's going to inform a lot of missiologists showing up, particularly showing up to some of these countries that think nothing's happening over here. You know, it's like, you know, this is, this, is, this is great. It's like, no, the, the, the strong arm tentacles of the Western, you know, influence of commercialization, they stretch far and deep. And the fact that, you know, you can have satellite connections to internets and you can be in the middle of nowhere and still get the internet, I mean, these videos are going to start popping up. You know, the sad thing is, places like in, um, oh, what was it? Was it Kenyan or somewhere in South Africa? I can't remember the article was talking about how people were so poor they were turning to the porn industry to make money because they were so poor. That was the only outlet that they had. You know, so I'm just like, oh, man, we got you know, we, we to do something. So there's this global aspect of it. There's a guy named the Iron Sheik out of Iraq, you know, that talks about, you know, the oppressive forces of, you know, Saddam Hussein and, you know, the Bush military, as he calls it, you know. But it's all done in his language. And, you know, that's something to continue with because young people are listening to that, including other Islams who are saying, Islamic women who are saying, well, wait a minute. Why do I have to cover my head? Where does it say that? Why do I have to walk seven steps behind you? Hell no, I ain't doing that. So now, even they are starting to question, you know, uh, where their identities and realities lie, you know, with Because, you know, Islam has is kind of remained pretty steady. I mean, there's been blips and beeps. That they're kind of starting to run into this era now, particularly with the rise of hip hop and Islamic rapper Lupe Fiasco being one of them. He's, he's a Muslim. But, you know, you look at him and you think, oh, you know, he's just a cool brother. Like, yeah, he is. I mean, he praises Allah. But he challenges things. He says certain things that, you know, particularly conservative, fundamental Muslims would be like, you're a heretic. You're blaspheming the name of God. How dare you do that? And of course, they have to do it in this country, because if they do it in their country, there are serious ramifications for that. But I think, hopefully, it's going to inform us about what's going on societally in other societies and other cultures, because I think hip-hop can do that if we just listen to the the lyrics and message should probably stop there because I know we're going to get reconvene at 5 in the big room. But I just wanted to thank you guys for coming. Thanks for your questions. Here's my contact information. Uh, if any of you guys want to uh, get a hold of a brother, this is me. Uh, and then I have cards. And just thank you. Let's just continue the conversation. And thank you for your time and attention. Appreciate it.